My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, we're in the sixth week of our Isaiah series. But before we even jump into the text in Isaiah, there's a couple of other things I wanted to talk to you guys about just to to update you on. Um, All throughout this series, there's been a focus we've seen with Isaiah on how the people of God are supposed to care for the least of these. They're supposed to care for people like widows and the oppressed and the suffering and and specifically orphans and the fatherless. And um, that combined with the fact that November is National Adoption Month made it a perfect time to just share with you guys about a ministry that we've been doing here at the church just to, to highlight it for those of you guys who aren't aware and then also to invite you to take part in it with us. So we are part of a network of churches called Foster the Bay. How many of you guys have already heard about Foster the Bay here? Sweet, most of you guys, that's awesome. Now, Foster the Bay is a coalition of churches in the Bay Area that's committed to providing a loving home for every single child in the foster system. And that sounds like an impossible, audacious goal, but it is actually incredibly, incredibly doable. At any given time in the Santa Clara County, there's 300 or so children without a place to go. And the number of churches in Santa Clara County is about 750. And so at Foster the Bay, we just decided, man, if we could get half of those churches to raise up one foster family and then help support those families, we could solve this problem. The church could actually solve this problem. So last year, South Valley was the sixth church to join Foster the Bay. Now there's over 20 in the area. I'm also on the leadership team there. And how it works is really simple. We raise up foster families from within the church. We try to provide an opportunity for those who feel called to foster to um, go through the licensing process. We help with that. And then once they're um, through that process, we surround each of the fostering families with four support friends or families. And these are other people from within the church who commit to helping in a strategic, ongoing way with that family. The goal is to make this incredibly difficult calling a little bit easier and to bring these children not just into a family but into the family of God and into the community of the church. So the coolest thing that I want to share with you guys is since we joined last year we've actually had five families go through the licensing process and two of them already have placements which is just incredible. Yeah. So I mean, man, when I, when I think about two children in loving families in the community of the church because of this ministry, it's like, this is what it's all about. So I wanted to make sure you guys were aware of that. And if you want to help, either if you're feeling the call to, to be a foster parent, which is this incredible, truly, I believe, missionary calling, um, then we want to help you go through that process. Um, but for the rest of us, this is a, an opportunity to step up and say, I'll be one of those support friends who will commit to helping this family with this incredible calling. So today, we're gonna have a table outside when you leave that says Foster the Bay on the tablecloth, and one of our volunteers will be out there to give you more information about Foster the Bay. You can fill out an interest card just if you want more information. It doesn't mean you're committing to be a foster parent. You can just fill the card out. Um, The other thing I wanted to share with you guys that's really cool is you've probably seen for the last, starting last week, we had a Christmas tree in the lobby that had ornaments all over it for you guys to take, and those represented angel tree, Um, which is a a ministry where we provide presents for the children of incarcerated families, incarcerated parents, and then our local Bridge Christmas store, which is an opportunity that we provide for families from the community who are low income to come in and and select gifts for their own children. And I just wanted to tell you guys, because I'm so proud of you, um, in last week alone, every single one of those got taken. So you guys are awesome. Yeah, give yourselves a hand. And we decided to respond to your generosity by filling the tree up again. So 
So if you, if you didn't get one last week or if you got one and you want to give another one, um, this is just an incredible opportunity. And both of these things, guys, but honestly, especially Foster the Bay, understand this is not like a fringe side issue for the church. This is our burden. The history of the church has always been to care for children without homes. And theologically, this is who we are. We are the orphan, the fatherless one, and God lovingly brings us into a home that we didn't deserve. So we want to mirror that in the way we treat the world. So with those positive, uplifting invitations out of the way, we're just going to take like a hard left turn back into the prophet of doom. Are we ready for that? (laughs) Back to the doom and gloom. Before we even look at Isaiah, though, I want to look at a verse from Genesis chapter 11 that has everything to do with what we're going to be talking about today. Genesis 11.4 says, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Now, many of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll recognize this verse, and it comes at the end of the first kind of narrative block of Scripture. And so we're going to really quickly kind of zoom through what happens leading up to this. And a lot of this is material that, that deserves a lot more time than I can give it today, And a lot of it has already been talked about in the series. So if you're new, this is kind of your first week in the Isaiah series, I recommend listening to the podcast because I'm just going to kind of skim over some incredibly significant things. The Bible opens with creation. Genesis 1 shows that God, the Spirit of God, is hovering over the waters, the pre-creation state. And it's described as formless and void in English. And that phrase, which is going to matter later, in Hebrew is, is tohu vavohu, that word Tohu, I know it's a funny sounding word, but tohu means desolate, empty chaos. So there's this picture of the world as a a chaotic, empty, meaningless place, and God speaks good order into it. He organizes the chaos into something good. That's the story of Genesis 1. At the end of that creative work, the kind of pinnacle of what he's doing is to create humanity. He creates Adam and Eve and gives them this job to be like him and represent him to the rest of creation. But very quickly, by Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel. And the rest of Genesis 3 through 11 is the story of the kind of unfolding, rippling outward effects of that first rebellion. So Genesis 4, right after Eve is tempted. And remember, in the temptation, the reason they rebel is because there's this fruit that God has told them not to eat. And the serpent in the garden whispers to Eve, if you eat that, what will happen? You'll become like God. You can lift yourself up to the place of God. And she does. The very next chapter, her two sons, Cain and Abel, um, they have this, this jealousy that Cain has of Abel, and God tells him, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to master you, and you have got to overcome it. But he doesn't. He gives in. He kills his brother, and he ends up leaving and start creating a city. And that city is characterized by this kind of like technological advances. There's music and art and construction happening, but at the same time, because it's in the hands of sinful, rebellious people, it's also characterized by murder. And you see that in the story. Fast forward a few more chapters, and you get the story of Noah and the flood. Many of us are familiar with this from children's books and and, uh, children's stories, because for some reason we like to tell the story of how millions and millions of people drowned as a children's story. (laughs) Um, But the point is God looks on the evil of humanity and says, we're taking all of this out and I'm going to bring this one righteous man and his family through the flood on this ark. The ark lands after the flood, 
Noah and his family get off the boat and we realize really quickly that that rebellion is in them as well. He's, uh, there's, there's actually a story that's amazing where he, he has planted a garden and you see again in that garden sin within the family of Noah, nakedness that needs to be covered. So sin, rebellion, is still alive and well even in Noah and his children. Now Noah's sons go out and become kind of like the heads of the different people groups in the ancient Near East. That happens in Genesis 10. And then in Genesis 11, all of humanity, all speaking the same language, come together in one city that we know as what? Babel. Genesis 11 is about a city that gets called Babel, and we'll see why it gets called that in a second. So all of humanity with one language comes together in a city, and this is what they want to do. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they don't want to be spread out across the earth. They want to be together. So they say, let's build a tower all the way up into the heavens. Let's raise ourselves up high. You hear echoes of Satan's promise to Eve in Genesis 3 here. The serpent said you could be like God. Here all of humanity together in one place says, let's raise ourselves up into the heavens. Now, when you see tower in this part of the world and in this time period, you don't want to picture like a high rise in New York and you don't want to picture a medieval castle, which is kind of what I naturally picture. A tower in the ancient Near East means a ziggurat. Anybody familiar with ziggurat? Kind of a cool word, right? A ziggurat has more in common with like an Aztec or Mayan temple than it does with a medieval castle. Picture steps leading up to kind of a platform on top. It's the precursor to the very famous pyramids that we see in Egypt. So this tower, I believe the author assumes that you know that the only buildings in this part of the world and during this time in human history, the only buildings that are towers are palaces and temples. This is temple language. Let's build a temple with its top in the heavens. But it doesn't say they're making it for any specific God, right? Who's it say they made it for? Who are they trying to make a name for? Themselves. Themselves. It's incredible. Genesis 3, the serpent tells Eve, eat this and you can be like God. By Genesis 11, all of humanity has come together into one city to build a tower to make themselves up in the place of God. Really cool thing happens where um, when God decides to do something about it, it says, let us go down, basically, and deal with this. So these guys are, you know, with their amazing technology, they're building this tower up to heaven, and when God has to deal with it, he's like, let's go down and deal with these guys down here. They haven't even gotten close. It's really cool. It's a really cool detail. And what he does is he confuses their language. So they all spoke the same language, and he confuses them so they can't talk to each other anymore, and it spreads them out all over the earth. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Um, the name here is, is Hebrew wordplay. He says, the name was called Babel, because there the Lord Balal, the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The exact same thing that they were trying to avoid at the beginning of the story. So all of humanity comes together to raise themselves up to the place of God, and God spreads them out. And the name of the city is Babel. Now this word Babel, the only place you'll see that English word in your entire Bible is Genesis 11. Nowhere else. But you know the Hebrew word Babel that's translated Babel occurs in your Bible over 250 more times in the Old Testament? Did you know that? That word is all 
over the place. But the only place it's translated to Babel is Genesis 11. Every other time that word occurs in the Bible, guess what it is? Babylon. Babylon. Now, the, you know, there's different arguments about why this particular chapter gets translated this way, why they did that back in, you know, the original translations. I personally think they're, they're trying to preserve the wordplay because just by an accident of language, the English word babble also kind of means confusion. But you miss, because of that, you miss the beginning of an incredibly important theme that stretches throughout the rest of the Bible, that collective humanity together, when human rebellion, like Adam and Eve, gets married to this satanic kind of self-advancement, that combination is just corporate, systematic evil and self-aggrandizement, and the Bible calls that Babylon. All of a sudden, the way the prophets are using that term, the way Isaiah has been using that term, those of you who are doing the reading plan, it kind of makes sense, right? What's the problem with Babylon? It's sinful humanity all coming together to raise themselves up to the place of God, and it started in Genesis 11. The very next story after this, Genesis 12, you get the calling of Abraham out of those dispersed nations, and God says, I'm going to give you a family, and interestingly, Kevin reminded me of this between services. He says, I'm going to give you a family and I'm going to give you a name. Thing that the people from Babylon were trying to give themselves, right? And he says, in your family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. He calls Abraham, whose family eventually becomes Israel, to be the anti-Babylon. Don't make a name for yourself. I'll give you a name. And in your family, I'm going to bless all the families of earth. So by the time we get to Isaiah... We see that Babylon kind of as a nation, like politically, the actual nation Babylon, it's an incredibly old nation and it's had some kind of ups and downs politically. It's disappeared completely for a while at some points and comes back. Um, In the parts of Isaiah we've been talking about so far, it's not a super prominent power on earth. It's kind of an up and comer. We're going to see a little bit of that today. But the image of Babylon doesn't point first and foremost to actual Babylon, right? the first thing that it links back to is Genesis 11, when humanity comes together and tries to raise themselves up to the place of God. Now, before we dive into Isaiah, do you guys feel like maybe this kind of self-aggrandizing, systematic human evil trying to become God, does, does Babylon, in that sense, still exist today? It's a really easy question. You're like, nope. We're good. (laughs) I'm just here for the singing. Um, Babylon absolutely continues on beyond just the nation Babylon. In the book of Revelation, John, this is the very last book in the New Testament, and John, the guy who writes it, he talks about Babylon all the time. But the nation Babylon, by the time John is writing the Revelation, it, it hasn't existed for hundreds of years. So he's not talking about national Babylon. And like the way biblical prophecy always works, he kind of is, but it's a picture of something much bigger. It's Genesis 11. It's, it's all of humanity when they get together and there is that old rebellion that started with Adam and Eve mixed with this self-centered, self-advancing attempt to define for ourselves what good and evil is. It's Babylon. And biblical prophecy is always like this, right? Those of you who were here last week remember Isaac talking about the day star, 
And the day star is this character who is explicitly identified as the king of Babylon. But is he just the king of Babylon? He's way more than that, right? He's the king of Babylon, but he also represents the evil personal force behind the king of Babylon. And he also represents Adam. And because he represents Adam, he also represents all of humanity. Biblical prophecy is, is kaleidoscopic. It's not, and this is, this is a consequence of it being a very old Eastern way of communicating. So in the West, we go like A plus B equals C. Prophecy in the Bible is not that simple. You get these kind of multivalent things where he says Daystar, he means king of Babylon, he means Satan, he means Adam. He says Babylon, we're going to see this today, he means Babylon, sure, but he means Assyria, he means Syria, he means, if we're being honest with ourselves, later, Rome. Beyond that, you can fill in the blank for yourself about who he might mean by Babylon today. So where are we in Isaiah? This is week six. We're halfway through the series, and we've seen a lot already. Has it been bright and cheery and happy? No, it has not. (laughs) The first 12 chapters are all about the failure of Israel to do what God told Abraham he wanted him to do. So Israel is supposed to care for the oppressed, care for the suffering, take care of the orphan and the widow. They're supposed to be the anti-Babylon, and instead they go along with the values of Babylon. And so God says, because of that, punishment is coming. After chapter 12, Isaiah opens up to start talking about all the nations of earth. And you get this series of, of oracles against the nations where it's like Egypt, Cush, all, every nation that's all of Israel's neighbors. One by one, they get called out. And the problem that you see over and over and over again with these nations is the Genesis 11 problem. Those of you who are doing the reading plan probably recognize this, that over and over again you're seeing what is God's problem with this nation? It's that they're arrogant. They've raised themselves up to the heavens. They think they're God. I actually, for a class in seminary, I wrote like a 15-page paper about the theme of Yahweh and the nations in Isaiah. And the kind of predominant thing you see over and over and over again is God has an issue with the nations because they're putting themselves in the place of God. One of the kind of most powerful moments in this section is in Isaiah 14, which Isaac talked about last week, the day star, this king of Babylon figure that hints to us that there's something behind that that's more sinister, that's more cosmic than just one king. And again, the king of a nation that at this point isn't even that big of a deal on the international scene in the ancient Near East. And finally, we get to Babylon, And Babylon comes in in this section in Isaiah 24 through 27 that a lot of scholars like to call the little apocalypse of Isaiah. I like to call it the tale of two cities because these three chapters really are talking to you about two cosmic cities. And both of them have a a real world reference point, but both of them are far beyond that. The language gets zoomed out and grand and apocalyptic, and that's why they call it the little apocalypse of Isaiah. The two cities are the strong city, and the lofty city. This is the language that Isaiah uses. The lofty city, think Genesis 11, the city that's lifted itself up. It's Babylon. And the strong city is Zion, which is another word for what city? Jerusalem. I love like, so many of you guys know this, and I'm so proud and impressed, but there's like this, I'm gonna whisper just in case I'm wrong thing. (laughs) I'm like, what's another word for Zion? You guys like, Jerusalem. It creeps me out every time. 
Zion is another word for Jerusalem. So you have lofty city, strong city. And again, he's talking about Babylon, and he's talking about Jerusalem, but he's talking about way more than just Babylon and Jerusalem. The lofty city, he also describes it, it's amazing, in chapter 24, he describes it as the Tohu city in Hebrew. And that's that same word from Genesis 1 when the Spirit of God is hovering over the, the waters and the waters are tohu vavohu, formlessness, chaos, uncreation. He's describing this city as the city of chaos. Specifically, the chaos that was there before God's good creation. So you're getting a hint that maybe this city, Babylon, what they really want as they lift themselves up and they decide what's right and wrong, when they put themselves in the place of God, what they're ultimately trying to do is unmake the created order that God has made. And ask you again, do you see that happening? Do you see any forces in the world that want to look at Genesis 1 and the way that God designed creation and say, no, not like that. That's not how we're going to do this anymore. That sound at all familiar? It's the city of chaos, the city of uncreation. And God says, judgment is coming on this city. The other city is the strong city. The strong city is Zion. And Zion, God says, in this section, is going to be this place where he gathers all of his people together and shelters them. And it's going to be a place where the healing for all the nations is going to come out of. Sometimes it's described in, in like Isaiah 2 that all the nations are coming to Zion for healing. Sometimes like here, it's, it's the healing, the word is going out from Zion to all the nations. It's incredible. It's like the, the language that we see in, in Genesis 12 with Abraham. We're going to bless all nations through this family. But remember, if we're paying attention to Isaiah, is Jerusalem during Isaiah's time in any kind of a position to go fix other nations? No. They're doing terrible the whole first 12 chapters are about how they are not doing what God wants them to do. They're unfit servants. They can't do the job God gave them. But at the same time, there's this promise that somehow, at some point, Jerusalem, Zion, this is going to be the place where healing for the nations happens, where God's people are gathered together. It's very mysterious, but you have these opposites, lofty city, strong city. And the theme of Babylon Again, try not to get too stuck on literal Babylon because at different time periods in, in Israel's history, different nations kind of represent the, the Babylon of their time. It's the nation that is, is lofty, lifted up, that's putting itself in the position of God. Again, man, when you read Isaiah, especially like Isaiah 15 through the mid-20s, you get nation after nation being accused of this exact same thing. So the prophecies continue just with doom and gloom and judgment and destruction, but always punctuated by this promise of hope. that Something good is coming. Somehow, God is going to do something that will cause Zion to be everything she was supposed to be and that will make God's people able to do what they were supposed to do. And it's tied up in this idea of Emmanuel, those of you who were here two weeks ago, we talked about the initial prophecy of Emmanuel. Prophecy of Emmanuel came during the reign of a king. We get a couple of little narrative sections in Isaiah. One of them is in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. It's about a king. I know this is complicated. Hang with me. 
In Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, there's a king named Ahaz. We talked about him two weeks ago. You guys remember, is he a good king or a bad king? Bad, yeah. Again, the whisper is bad. (laughs) If you're not sure, and someone asks if a king of Israel is good or bad, a safe default is usually bad. (laughs) We only get a few good ones. And Ahaz is a bad king. What happened with Ahaz is he was being threatened by an alliance between Syria and Ephraim, two nations that are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. And his temptation is to run to help to the Babylon of his day, which is a mighty nation called Assyria. And so the temptation is go to Assyria, the Babylon of your time period, and ask them for help. They can come and save you. And Isaiah meets with him at a place called the Washer's Field and says, don't do it. Trust God. Stand firm. Stand strong. God can deliver you. And Ahaz doesn't listen to him. He doesn't have faith. He doesn't trust in God. And so he invites in that Babylon-like force. He invites Assyria by partnering with them. He lets Babylon in. And as a result of that alliance, Isaiah says, you're going to get some short-term benefits from that. They'll destroy your enemies, all right, but they're going to set their sights on you next. And your sons are going to have to pay the, the price for your bad alliances that you're making. And during that time, he makes this promise about this Emmanuel figure. He says, a child is going to be born who will be called Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean in Hebrew? God with us. Great job. This child will be called God with us. By the time that kid's old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, the two kings you're scared of are going to be destroyed. Sounds like it's coming soon, right? Then he, the prophecy kind of goes on a couple chapters later about how he's going to be a son of David. He's going to be a king. The government is going to rest on his shoulders, and he's going to reign in righteousness and justice, the very things that the nation of Israel has been lacking this whole time. A good king's coming who's going to actually do what he needs to do, unlike Ahaz. If you're hearing that prophecy at that time, you're expecting that to happen soon. Fast forward 27 chapters, and there's a king named Hezekiah, Ahaz's son. I set you guys up for this really bad, but is Hezekiah a good king or a bad king? He's a good king. Those of you who took my advice earlier and said bad, that was my fault, totally set you up. Um, Hezekiah is one of a very short list of good kings in Jerusalem. We we hear about him in in the books of Kings, Chronicles, and Isaiah. He's a king who, when he comes on the scene, he's taking down false worship, he's destroying idolatry, he's calling people back to faithfulness to Yahweh, he's doing incredibly good things. But all of those prophecies that Isaiah made about how Assyria, the Babylon that you let in, they're going to come for you next, they start to come true in Hezekiah's day. So Hezekiah, this good and faithful king, all of a sudden, Assyria comes knocking at the door. Remember, this is the Babylon of the day. This is the mighty nation that has lifted themselves up to the place of God. And so they come, and we have historical records of this happening, even from outside the Bible. They're destroying all the other cities in the territory of Judah, and they're just kind of like smashing them one at a time and making their way closer and closer to Jerusalem. And then they arrive at Jerusalem's walls and set up a siege. And man, some of the stories that we're not going to talk about today, some of the stories of how horrific this siege is are like some of the most disturbing and upsetting stories in the entire Old Testament. The pressure on Hezekiah is enormous. Is he going to do what his father did? Or is he going to be the righteous king with the government on his shoulders? 
The parallels with Ahaz are amazing. Watch what happens. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. That's like a bunch of words that don't mean anything, and we'll talk about it in a second. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Again, do not kick yourself if you didn't notice this when you read Isaiah in your reading plan. But the place where this meeting happens is the same place where Isaiah met with Ahaz, the washer's field, the place where you go to make your garments white as snow. The person who comes, that, that Rabshakeh, that's his title, not his name. And he's basically the mouthpiece for Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. He's like Sennacherib's prophet. He goes and meets with Hezekiah's representatives and speaks the words of the evil king of Assyria. And this guy is like the ultimate grand master ancient Near Eastern trash talker of the entire Bible. He is good at his job. I told first service, I love the ancient trash talk that happens in the Old Testament. I'll like crack up while I'm reading the Bible at some of the stuff that they say. My favorite one is in Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah is building the wall and this guy, Tobiah the Ammonite, who's trying to discourage them, he comes up and, and he goes, hey, nice wall. I'll bet if a fox ran on it, the whole thing would fall over. And I just picture all his friends being like, hey, yeah. Um, this guy, the Rabshaka, is a much better trash talker than Tobiah. He says some of the most horribly discouraging things. He's coming to, you know, kind of on the surface, the idea is he's going to make a deal with Hezekiah's representatives, but his real job is to discourage Hezekiah and all the people of Israel. So he says things like, I'll tell you what, we'll give you guys 2,000 horses if you have enough riders to put on them. He goes, your army's so small, even if I gave you 2,000 horses, you don't have enough people to put on them. He tells him, you guys are trusting in God. You're trusting in Yahweh to defend you. Yahweh told me to come destroy you guys. It's like psychological warfare is going on. He also says, um, at one point, Hezekiah's representatives say, hey, stop speaking Hebrew. All the men on the walls can hear you and understand you. Just speak Aramaic. We understand Aramaic. And the Rabshakeh says, I'm not going to switch the language I'm speaking. These guys need to hear it too because they're destined to eat their dung and drink their urine just like all of you are. And then he proceeds to say things to scare and intimidate the guys on the walls. Finally, he says this. And this is where it becomes personal with the God of Israel. The Rabshakeh says, Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? He goes, Assyria has been storming through the entire known world, destroying everybody. You think those guys didn't have a God that they trusted in? None of their gods could deliver them. Your God is just like all of those gods. He can't save you either. Now, in the story of Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, the bad king, Isaiah went to Ahaz to deliver a message. You see the righteousness of Hezekiah in that the very first thing he does when he receives this news, because his men, the representatives who were talking to the Rabshakeh, they come to him with their clothes torn and they're freaking out. And Hezekiah says, get Isaiah. I need to hear from God right now. And so Isaiah comes and delivers the same message he gave to Ahaz. He says, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Trust in Yahweh. He says, they're going to hear a rumor and they're going to leave. And when he's back in his own land, that's where he'll die. Picture the pressure 
Hundreds of thousands of Assyrian troops are laying siege. People are dying of starvation in Jerusalem. And Isaiah says, no, he's going he's to go home and he'll die there. Trust God. And the amazing thing is Hezekiah does. He prays this prayer. And the prayer that Hezekiah prays, I want to read the whole thing because it shows you the character of this guy. This is Hezekiah's prayer in Isaiah 37. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. You see the difference between Hezekiah's worldview and Sennacherib's? He says, I destroyed all these other gods. What makes your God special? Hezekiah says, those weren't even gods. That's why he destroyed them. You're different, Yahweh. Save us. And here's why. And this is incredible. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, not because I'm scared, not because I don't want my kingdom taken from me, but that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Yahweh. It's an incredible prayer. He goes, he has come and trash-talked Yahweh himself, but you're not like the other gods he's destroyed. You are actually God. Vindicate yourself in the eyes of all the nations. And the amazing thing is, God does. God responds to the faith of Hezekiah, and um, mysteriously, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers die outside the walls. And Assyria goes home. And when they get back, Sennacherib, the king, he's worshiping in the, god, in the temple of his god, a god named Nisroch, and uh, his two sons, Sennacherib's own sons, come in and kill him there. Just like Isaiah said. Hezekiah, the good, faithful, strong king, unlike Ahaz, he does not let Babylon in. He says, no, Assyria is staying outside the walls because I trust my God to defend us. Now, if you listened to the prophecies that Isaiah made back in 789 and you're watching this happen around you, you're going, this is Emmanuel. This is the Messiah. He's the son of David. The government's upon his shoulders. He's establishing righteousness and justice. He's staying faithful. He's holding back the enemies. We're saved. The Messiah is here. It's an incredible moment with this righteous king. But, unfortunately, Hezekiah's story isn't over yet. We get one more chapter with Hezekiah in it. And it's the biggest letdown in the entire book so far, in my opinion. Oh, I should say, uh, after the defeat of Assyria, Hezekiah gets really sick. And there's a story that's kind of parallel to the story of the siege of Jerusalem where he's sick, he cries out to God for help, Isaiah tells him, gives him a sign. It's, it's a parallel story, but he recovers. And so this is what happens after that. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. This is not like a nice neighbor king delivering like a get well soon card. Babylon at this point in history is the up-and-coming nation, especially now that Assyria has been dealt with, right? This is a political overture. He's coming to kind of, hey, let's, let's talk. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. 
And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So Isaiah hears about this and goes to Hezekiah and he goes, what did you, what did you do? What did you show them? And Hezekiah goes, I, I showed them everything. There's nothing in the whole land I didn't show them. And Isaiah says, because you did this, they're going to come back someday and they're going to destroy this place. They're going to take all the treasure from the temple and even some of your own descendants are going to be taken with them. And in this bizarre, like, seemingly out of character, selfish moment, Hezekiah's answer is, oh, well, at least we'll have peace in my day. After standing firm against the the Babylon of his day, Assyria, staying faithful, keeping them out, who does Hezekiah give the keys to the kingdom to? Actual, literal Babylon. The city from Genesis 11 that represents all of humanity collectively holding themselves up in the place of God. The end of Hezekiah's story is he lets Babylon in. And Isaiah's right. 115 years later, Babylon's going to come back. They're going to destroy the temple, take all the treasure, and walk away with the majority of the population of Jerusalem and take them into exile. I'll talk more about that in, in the coming weeks. But the person who lets them in is this guy who, for three chapters, looked like he was the Emmanuel child. He looked like he was going to finally be the good king who keeps Babylon out. And his story ends with him literally and figuratively and in every other possible way letting Babylon into the kingdom. So it's kind of a bait and switch. We thought this was the Messiah, but his story ends and we go, this can't be him. All the promises about a good king, there has to be another one coming because it can't be this guy. So fast forward 700 years. We're no longer in a palace. We're no longer in the temple of Jerusalem. There's no kingly robes. We're in the desert and a, a traveling preacher and prophet named Jesus of Nazareth, after he gets baptized, gets driven into the desert by the Spirit to do battle with the day star himself. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil says, You're hungry, you've been fasting 40 days. Use your son of God power now. Turn these stones into bread, feed yourself. Jesus, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, says, no. The second temptation, then the devil took him to the holy city, Zion, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil can quote scripture. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the devil says, prove that God loves you. Prove that he'll do what he said he'll do. And Jesus says, no. We're rushing past these two temptations because this is the one I want to look at, the third one in Matthew's account. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Most of us know what Jesus is going to say. But you got to pause here and appreciate the gravity of this situation. Jesus is up on a lofty place, on a mountain. And Satan, the day star himself, the force behind the king of Babylon from Isaiah 14, he says, take it now. Here's all the kingdoms of the world. Take them now. You do not have to, to suffer. You don't have to be disbelieved and reviled by your own people. You don't have to be tortured and killed on a cross. Stop making yourself lower and lower and lower. Rise up now. Do what Babylon does. Do it our way. Build that tower. Raise yourself up. You can do it now. Every other human being in all of human history, when faced with this temptation, gives in. Evil kings like Ahaz do it. Good kings like Hezekiah do it. Every human king, when Babylon knocks at the door, they let them in. And here you have Jesus, a poor teacher and prophet, out in the desert by himself, and the devil himself offers him Babylon, the thing that humans have been falling for since Genesis 11, and Jesus says, no. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, we don't know what would have happened if Jesus had said yes, like if Satan was just going to like snap his fingers and transfer power, or if Jesus was going to do what every other Jewish Messiah had tried to do and, and get an army of Jewish revolutionaries to go march on Rome and, and try to kill Pilate. We have no idea what was going to happen if he said yes, but we know that Jesus, when Babylon knocks on the door, is the first king ever to say no. Because taking power now for yourself, making much of yourself, raising yourself up to the heavens, that's what Babylon does. And Jesus won't let Babylon in. Jesus is on an opposite trajectory. Jesus, the book of Philippians will say later, is bringing himself lower and lower and lower. And in Jesus, you see a completely new kind of power on display. Jesus isn't going to try to fight Babylon on Babylon's terms. Jesus is going to do something completely new to defeat Babylon. And it's something that the prophet Isaiah is going to begin to describe for us, starting now, but especially when we get into the Christmas season. In the last four weeks of this series, Isaiah is going to start to describe for us what the power of Jesus looks like, what his way of waging war against Babylon looks like. And I'm telling you, no matter how long you've been a Christian, let Isaiah reframe your way of thinking about who Jesus is and what he did. It's absolutely transformative. It's incredible. Jesus, Jesus demonstrates what it means to stand against Babylon. So, as we kind of 
come to a close here, there's a few things that I want to talk about um, that are just things that, that we need to reflect on when it comes to this idea of the lofty city. Because the lofty city, Babylon, is alive and well today. We could pick out cities in our area if we wanted to and say, here's how this is Babylon, here's how this is Babylon. But, but we, we know, right, that Babylon is alive and well. John knew it when he's writing Revelation 500 years after Babylon's been destroyed. There's three things that I, that I see with Babylon that kind of jump out at me in our current situation. The first one is, is the selfishness and autonomy, the arrogance of the nations of earth. Again, this is, this is God's complaint through Isaiah about what the problem with the world is. He's like, all of these nations are trying to make themselves like God. So we need to ask ourselves, have I bought into the idea which is extremely prevalent in our culture, that the way to success, the way to doing well, is to make much of myself, to build a tower for myself where I can take care of everything, where I don't need anyone else and no one else is getting anything from me, and I can just kind of lift myself up and be taken care of, right? That's, that's like the chief value of the world we live in, you guys. I'm telling you, selfishness and autonomy are hallmarks of Babylon, not Zion, not Jesus. If we look at ourselves and we see people who are doing everything we can to lift ourselves up at the expense of the people who we could help, who are suffering, I would suggest that we've let Babylon in. We've allowed them to tell us what success looks like. People who know God creates humility, the opposite of the arrogance that the nations displayed. The second thing is entertainment, and this might seem kind of weird, but I think it's really connected. Isaac talked about it a little bit last week. You guys have been following the news of what's happening in Hollywood right now? Anybody? Like every single day, right? There's a new person who we find out something horrible about. And I've seen a lot, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I've seen a lot of people kind of pointing this out and crying out, look at the monsters of Hollywood, look at their empires crumble. Be gracious with me because this is me too. But if you're sitting back, pointing at the downfall of the monsters of Hollywood while spending hour after hour letting them control your worldview by watching the garbage they create, signing their paychecks by paying for it, I would suggest you have let Babylon in. This is hard. And if you're like me, your first reaction will be like, oh, what, so I'm, I'm supposed to just like watch Kirk Cameron Hallmark movies for the rest of my life? Like, that's all I'm allowed? I can't watch anything cool? The new Star Wars is coming out. Is that Babylon? Resist. There, there's this false dichotomy that people do. There's like four people in here who love Kirk Cameron who are like, I'm never coming back to this church. <laughs> if you love Kirk Cameron movies... Rock and roll. There's a false dichotomy people have where they say, okay, so I can't stop all of this. I'm not gonna sell my TV and, and like go live in the mountains and never watch a single billboard or a single TV show ever again. I can't cut it all off. And so you end up doing nothing instead, right? That is a false dichotomy. You have to get it out of your head right now. Just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything. And I know that's really obvious when you say it like that, but we all, including myself, we all do that. We go, I'm not going to cut all of it out, so I might as well just watch whatever I want. 
what you spend hours and hours of your life taking in creates your worldview. It creates the way you see the world around you. You have to understand that. And the very monsters that we're watching fall and crumble, where even Hollywood itself, like Babylon is turning on itself. Even the rest of Hollywood is going like, these guys are horrible. Those are the people who are controlling the way you see the world if you let them. So I would suggest little steps. Don't do nothing just because you can't do everything. Evaluate the way you're spending your time. Evaluate the things you're putting in front of your eyes and ask, what can I remove that will stop me from kind of being influenced by Babylon, that will stop me from having their view of the world? And do it a little bit at a time. I said in first service, you don't have to be like the Dowlers who don't have a TV. You're, <laughs> that's true, by the way. Um, but you could be. But maybe it's a smaller first step than that. Maybe it's, here's four shows I watch, and you know what, this one if I'm honest with myself, I know it's bad for me. I know it's changing the way I look at women. I know it's changing the way I treat my family. I know it's changing the words that I use, my thought processes. Do that honest self-reflection and ask, how can I get some of the Babylon out instead of just letting it all in? And then finally, and this is, this is sort of a big picture one, ask yourself, where is your trust and to whom is your loyalty? The nations of earth, man, they are, they are temporary, every single one of them. Babylon comes and goes. The, the version of Babylon that destroys Jerusalem comes and goes in 70 years. The nation that replaces it is a nation called Persia. Persia lasts a couple hundred years. So they do better, but uh, they last for a shorter amount of time than America has been around already. Rome, kind of the next major huge one, they do a really good job. They last 500 years. But where are they today? Is there still a powerful Roman Empire? And like some of you guys are going, yes, we'll talk after. <laughs> Every single nation, the most successful human nations on earth, all of them, all of them, every king, every country, they eventually wear out, fade away, and crumble. And if you have put your hope in them, you will crumble right with them. The only king that exists forever, that will never wear out, will never fade away, will never stop being worthy of your adoration and loyalty is Jesus Christ. Period. The only one. And so again, this, is, this isn't stuff that we do consciously, but if you stop and, and evaluate, who does it look like I'm putting my trust in? Who do I spend the most time talking about? What am I the most focused on? And ask yourself, have I trusted in earthly kings and earthly rulers and earthly nations to deliver me and save me when I know there's only one king who can do that? Ask yourself these questions because here's the bottom line, you guys. So far, we've been talking kind of about Babylon out here, you know, like keep them outside the walls, defend yourself from them, trust in God to overcome them for you. And that's all true and that's all good, but the way the Bible talks about this stuff, and especially, we've seen it in Isaiah already, Babylon is not just out there, right? Babylon is in here. That's the problem. That's why humanity keeps falling for it because ever since Genesis 3, Babylon has a foothold in our hearts and we need a king who, who won't just stand against that Babylon but who will clean this Babylon out of you, who will shine a spotlight on it for you. I'm completely convinced that regular people cannot withstand Babylon. If they ask 
for your adoration, you'll give it to them. But Christians, people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are in Christ, I believe we can say no to Babylon because we're not relying on our own strength anymore because there's a strength within you that is more powerful than you could ever be on your own. And when Babylon knocks at your door, if you lean on Jesus, if you rely on Jesus, we can say no. A little bit at a time, we follow the example of Jesus. Not to become perfect, but to resist this force that changes the world that we see and that twists everything into a a false, evil caricature of the good creation that God made. Learn to resist Babylon. And the last thing I'll say is this, do not try to do this by yourself. This is what the church is for. I'm glad you're here this Sunday morning. If you're not in a small group, please join one. Have friends that are Christians that can help you with this, where you can communicate about this stuff and you can stand together. Christianity is a team activity, period. And if you want to resist the incredible, like inexorable pressure of Babylon, you do it as a team. Isaiah, like I said, is going to show us that uh, there's a solution coming to the problem of Babylon that is operating on a completely different level than Babylon. And that solution is going to get unpacked for us in the coming weeks. So please continue coming, continue doing the reading plan, and dig into this book so that we can transform our view of who Jesus is. And in the meantime, you guys, take courage and know that because of the finished work of Jesus, you absolutely can stand against Babylon. And if I could give one more little plug, one of the simplest ways you can do that is say, I'm going to stand with a foster family. You want to talk about people resisting Babylon? Do you know where those kids will end up? Small steps. But we can do it. I'm convinced we can do it because we're not fighting on our own. There's a power behind the church, behind individual Christians that is so far beyond the power that Babylon has that it's not even funny. And someday they're going to lose. And in the meantime, we do everything we can to resist their influence and show another way of living. Let's pray. Father, I am, um, I am in need of, of you coming and shining a light on the places in my life where I have allowed Babylon in. I need you to reveal for me the ways that I have given in to Babylon's ways of thinking. God, this isn't about just feeling horrible about ourselves. It's not about just feeling guilt that will drive us to despair. It's about turning our eyes towards the things in our life that are not of you, that are influencing us away from you. C.S. Lewis talked about how there's not a, a neutral spot of ground in all the earth. It's, it's all either yours or the enemy's. And everything we do is either drawing us towards you or pushing us away from you. And Lord, I pray that all of us would learn to hold Babylon at bay, to say no to Babylon like you did in the desert, to draw close to you. And Lord, we know that the only reason we can do that is because of what you accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. You saved us from Babylon and you give us the power now to resist it. Lord, please let this community be a community that is characterized by a radical commitment to helping the suffering, the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, so that we can stand against Babylon and say we serve a different king. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.